Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Marie DeLuca. She is an emergency medicine doctor and research fellow in New York. She is an organizer for Doctors for Camp Closure, a network of over 2,500 healthcare workers advocating for human rights and healthcare for asylum seekers and the undocumented community in the United States. Without further ado, here is Marie DeLuca. You're very welcome to the show, Marie DeLuca. Perhaps you could start by telling us how you ended up in medicine. Thank you for having me. So I started doing medical care for people when I was about 16 in high school. Our, uh, I grew up in a small town and our high school had a volunteer ambulance service as part of the overall volunteer fire and ambulance service in the town that I went to school in. So I started doing medical care then and through that became fascinated by the science of medicine and the practice of medicine and have always been passionate about the problems that exist in our world that we often don't feel like we have um, power agency to change. And I think healthcare is one way that we can try to fight against the things that cause suffering and the things that cause pain amongst our community and our loved ones. And through that, you see that healthcare is much bigger than seeing someone in an ambulance when they're having a heart attack, and that the process starts so much earlier than that. One of the things I think drew me to providing medical care is that I feel like the world that I grew up in, we hide sickness and death away in hospitals, um, in closed spaces, and we don't really interact with it unless it's really, really personal, whether it's someone who you know we know and love who's dying or who's ill. And I've always found that, that distance, that cognitive dissonance to be more painful than interacting with the problems up close. So part of it is is this personal desire to interact with these issues and not have them hidden away from me. And another part of it is is wanting to be able to influence that process and to provide support for, you know, the communities I live in and the people who are around me. Marie, you've been involved in medical activism for a number of years. Was there a particular event? Was there a particular issue that brought your attention to this? and eventually led you on the path that you have now taken? I, I don't think I can give a, a particular moment. I think I was always, not always, um, but I was often thinking about these issues, you know, just through like exposure to news and um, a recognition that the comfortable life that I grew up with was one of privilege. Um, and that's something that I've come to terms with over, you know, lots and lots of, I would say, like community-based education from people I know, helping me to understand like what privilege and oppression look like and how those influence our lives. So that's part of it. I do, you know, it's interesting that you mention young people entering medicine, because I will say that in my political activist work, a lot of the people that I encounter who want to do that kind of work it spans the age range, but we have a lot of interested, you know, students and 
And in some ways, I see a pattern of people entering at least our medical education system in the U.S. with a lot of passion for activism and with a lot of history of activism, some of whom have come from communities that were really directly affected by a lot of the oppressive systems in our country and then in the U.S. And then the medical system itself removing the time and the energy that they have to do that kind of work. And we've seen sort of conflicts within the U.S. medical community about, you know, should doctors be activists? And oftentimes that comes from a place of the students really pushing for that because that's what they went into medicine for. They wanted to be activists. They don't see those as separate roles. And then the the hierarchical medical society trying to ex- extract that from them and separate that out. So that's that's something that I see at least here, which which I think suggests that there are a lot of young people who want who see this as part of their their intrinsic role and why they came to medicine in the first place. That is very encouraging, Marie. But but I wonder to what extent young people, particularly young doctors, can be involved in medical activism or other matters that are not directly related to their careers when they've got fees to pay back, when they've got so much else going on in their lives? Yes, I think the medical education system in the U.S. uh, creates a lot of debt, and that is a huge problem for a lot of people in my generation. I have four grandparents who were doctors, and as a result, I don't have medical debt. And so that is something that gives me more freedom and agency right now because I don't have to pay that debt back. But a lot of the my colleagues, a lot of people who I do activist work with, do have medical like debt from medical education, and that is a huge problem. And I see that as part of sort of the broader set of structures that prevents people from enacting um, that agency and does perpetuate the hierarchy in the medical system and is really part of these you know global um, forces like capitalist forces that prevent people from spending the time and energy that they want to on building their communities. So I I I absolutely think that that's a problem. There's a lot of desire, I think, but yes, there's, there's definite restrictions. So in practice, how, how does this happen? How do people get involved when they've got so much else that they need to be thinking about? How does it fit into the rest of their lives? I think that we see people trying to fit activism in wherever they can. I think that there's a lot of people who are willing to take risks. And then there's, you know, types of activism which are, are you know, more likely to um, result in, in challenges to your career and types of activism that aren't. I think for me, I waited to participate in any or organize any kind of civil disobedience until I was out of residency because I knew that that was a more risky time for me. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to complete my career training before and had my medical license before taking on something like that, which I thought could, you know, potentially impede obtaining my medical license, not because it should, because I don't, I think that medical licensure is about whether or not someone can be a good doctor and what's a better demonstration of that than being willing to take risks for your patients for their health. But, you know, there are large governing bodies that control this. And, you know, I do think that there's a lot of honestly unharnessed uh, power 
of people within the medical training systems who want to be taking action and feel like they can't because they have these, you know, potential restrictions. During the COVID-19 pandemic in New York City, we've seen penalization of residents who spoke out about conditions in their hospitals, about the, you know, issues uh, faced by people who are in training and are, you know, working in very jobs. And so that's been, you know, a problem. On the other side, we see that there's resident unions that form, and that provides some areas of, you know, protection through collective labor organizing. And I think that that's a really important avenue for people to pursue because, you know, there is some some protection numbers. But that's one way that we could see, you know, more of that going forward. This must require a lot of resilience when you're dealing with very challenging situations and when you are going to face disappointment or setbacks. How do you become resilient enough to be so active in areas that are so challenging in healthcare? I think uh, one of the best ways to, you know, and I, I don't know because I think uh, resilience is something perhaps best measured looking back and I'm young and it's early. Um, So we'll see. But I think, you know, one thing that I find is helpful for me is knowing that I'm part of, you know, networks and communities of people who are very supportive. Um, So for example, you know, I have a lot of both medical and non-medical friends in Detroit who have, have a very similar set of, you know, political beliefs to me. They are um, very committed to non-hierarchical organizing. They're very committed to community organizing. We're all queer. And, you know, I think when I think about the problems that I see in the medical system, I sometimes think about how would, what would I tell them about what I was doing? And, in some ways, that's like a, a little internal accountability process for me because I want to be able to go to the people that I love and the people I care about um, and my friends and say that I'm doing work like the work that they're doing, you know, and that I that when I when I see other people doing that kind of work, uh, that inspires me and also motivates me to go and take risks. And I have found, and what has been heartening is that. As you know, I do more organizing within the medical community. I meet all of these people who were the people that I've always wanted to meet going into this career, but maybe didn't meet in other aspects of the medical system. And so I feel like it's been a great way to find people who do value the same things and care about the same things and see the world and see its problems and are not satisfied with you know, the the few answers that we've come up with so far. And so that, I think, provides a basis for, for some resilience. I think resilience is, is largely about community support. What are the causes that you have now dedicated yourself to over and above your medical career? I guess I'll give two things that I'm passionate about. One of them is is more about like the mechanisms of um, activism and organizing. Um, and then the other would be uh, I guess what you're what I'm interested in organizing about. Um, so the thing that I think I'm most passionate about organizing around right now would be decarceration. 
So uh, ending detention, ending the mass incarceration systems in the United States and allowing people to be free again. You know, in the U.S., we have a huge problem where we have incarcerated so many people and the act of taking away people's freedom and putting them into that kind of environment is hugely destructive. I've been organizing around uh, specifically the immigration uh, issue of um, immigration detention and also the policies that have taken apart the uh, asylum process in the U.S. and are not allowing people to you know, travel freely to safety. And so those things are, are very salient right now and are big concerns of mine. And then, you know, we have this pandemic. And so this become this is, I think, in a lot of it's it's a, sort of the worst case scenario. I mean, when we were talking about things uh, a couple months ago before the pandemic hit, the idea of having people in detention was concerning. And one of the things we were talking about was influenza and the deaths of children from influenza in um, U.S. immigration detention systems. And now we have, you know, over a thousand people with COVID just in the immigration systems. And, you know, there's a there's a huge grassroots movement across the country to try to get people released. Um, but we're already seeing deaths. So, you know, that's that is a worst case scenario. And it's one that's been created and it's one that would be that is easily solved by releasing people, allowing them to, you know, be in situations where they can socially distance and have access to you know, basic things like soap. But that's not what's happening. Um, and so there's there's a lot of fear and a lot of urgency around that. And there's a lot of people who have been working in immigration organizing for decades who are from communities that are most affected. Um, and so, you know, something that people in, you know, my medical network are trying to do is, is connect with those efforts um, and support those. So that's what I'm most passionate about right now. And then more broadly, I think the idea we're talking about, about getting uh, medical professionals, especially doctors, because those are the people I know most closely and also are a group of people with um, largely a lot of economic privilege um, once they, you know, uh, escape the medical student debt and, you know, some power and prestige in society. And there's a real need for us to be willing to take a risk. And so I think something that I'm passionate about is trying to reshape how we see our role uh, from one in which we're working for a medical industrial complex that's very hierarchical and very top down and has a lot of intermediaries between people who want healthcare and people who want to provide it, which really should be the, the only people in that conversation. And seeing if what we can do instead is to organize ourselves uh, and to not see ourselves as you know, part of a, a hierarchy of doctor and medical student and resident and, you know, nurse and all these other things and see ourselves as, you know, people in a, in a community who have skills that, you know, we want to offer to people who might want access to those skills. And how do we do that? And how do we start to be willing to take risk when we do that? Because there is a lot of, of fear. And I think the fear oftentimes comes from a, a fear of loss of privilege. And I do think that, especially when we look at the actions that um, medical professionals are often willing to take, compared with the actions that people who organize from within the community are willing to take. I mean, we've seen 
in the U.S., you know, undocumented youth who would self-deport as a form of protest. They would get intentionally allow themselves to be brought into immigration detention facilities to be arrested so that they could organize within those detention facilities. And that is a tremendous amount of risk that takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery. And, you know, to compare that to writing an op-ed, you know, and, and so I, I think it's, it's not, so I don't say that to, to say like, we should feel shame or we should feel guilt or we should feel like we need to like pedestalize one group of people or another, but just to say that like, it gives us a space to reflect on what we can do as people and to say, you know, huh, what does that look like? Like, what does it look like to really take a risk to remake the world in a, in a better way? And I think from those risks, people do gain power. Um, and I think there is a proportionality there. And I think as we reflect and as we connect with one another, we can, can build that power and also deprogram some of the, the fear that was like put into us by the training system that really didn't want people to do that. You know, there are, are a lot of structures in U.S. medicine that don't want people to be doing non-hierarchical organizing to provide free care and uh, to you know, reduce the structures of privilege and oppression. But that is something that I think we, we can do. Uh, and I think that there is an internal process there that we can all go through and, you know, we continue to work on as, as part of the personal, you know, each of our personal human projects. So how do you, Marie, look after yourself in the course of the work that you do, it must be extraordinarily challenging to be an activist and to have to deal with so many challenges which are potentially quite threatening in, in lots of ways. I think the first thing would be to try to connect with other activists. And honestly, probably the best place to start is outside of the medical community in most cases. I mean, I was involved in, you know, small amounts of organizing through Occupy when I was in college. It was Occupy in Rhode Island, so it was Occupy Providence. And then, you know, was involved as a street medic in various uh, protest groups and organizations for many years before I started to specifically try to organize with other physicians. Um, and that was really out of desire to be able to participate in other more powerful and risky forms of activism, because I thought that if I did that with other physicians at my side, it would be a way to, to combine, you know, the, the like background and lens of being a physician with activism and that that would be more powerful. But before that, I was, you know, involved in other, you know, activist communities or organizations, again, not in a major organizing role, but that was something that gave me familiarity with, you know, what does it look like to organize a protest? What parts are needed? And, you know, I think you can spend like a lot of time watching and observing and, and listening. And I think that that is very valuable and that is uh, a really good way to start to build skills. And then those com those connections help you going forward because then you start to see like who is the network of, of people who are doing the work that you want to be involved in. If you can find other uh, activists within your medical community, that's great. But I think if 
you don't find that, then look outside of it because there are definitely people who share that value. And there are, you know, you learn a lot from not just being surrounded by uh, medical professionals. So I think that that's a really valuable thing and a good place to start. You know, I think also looking for those little moments within the workday. So, you know, trying to find finding times when, you know, maybe someone's making a comment that is racist or sexist or uh, finding times when, you know, a patient really needs a resource and you're, you know, where to look for that resource. Uh, I remember taking care of a person in Detroit who needed resources for substance use disorder rehabilitation. And the ones that the um, medical team were providing to him were uh, for, were for organizations that were not very friendly to LGBTQ folks. And so I went later and brought him resources that I thought would be more uh, useful to him that were like specifically for LGBTQ people. And that was something that he said was really valuable to him. So I think that there are those smaller moments where we can, you know, maintain our activism and also build those skills of pushing back and not just accepting the status quo. And then I think the other thing is really, is that pushing back is being able to uh, say no and to recognize what hierarchy is and what it's doing and what power structures are in existence and how they're harmful and doing that analysis, seeing how we're complicit in that and then uh, taking steps to not be complicit and to, you know, remove those power structures. I think there's a lot of ways to practice that as a person in training or a young physician who's just out of training as we're also looking to, to link with larger activist movements. What is it do you think that sustains you through all of this? How is it that you get your energy when you are giving so much to the causes that you now support? I actually do see activism as part of that. Uh, going back to that idea of cognitive dissonance, when I recognize that there's a large amount of harm being done in society, having some ways to concretely try to change that and to to build that that different world is really helpful to me. And when I don't have those or I'm not um, taking action, I feel a lot of that malaise that I think is is actually fairly common in modern societies of uh, fairly privileged people. And that's certainly not like, that's not worse. That's not worse than like the experiences of people who are like significantly impressed. But I do see in like online communities, on social media, this sort of sense of like giving up or throwing up your hands or, you know, relying on electoral politics. And then when electoral politics fails you, feeling this like huge sense of despair and for me, thinking about like the the much longer arc of activism um, in the U.S. and in the world in general, and really like working with and meeting the people who are building that is is really gratifying and does give me a sense of like both fulfillment and also energy going forward. I think you know the other thing is being able to be in spaces where. I can see like a little piece of that world that I want to live in. So like I was saying um, about the community that I 
have spent time with in Detroit. You know, when I go to visit my friends there, all of the food, almost all the food that, you know, they eat and cook with is reclaimed, um, food that would have been food waste. And so, you know, I get to live in a world where, very briefly, a small piece of a world where people aren't experiencing scarcity or buying food or doing large amounts of like capitalist consumption, but are instead, you know, reclaiming food waste and making delicious meals out of it, where people are structuring parties to like learn more about power dynamics and consent and spending time during those parties writing to their friends who are incarcerated. And so there's a way to experience a lot of joy and also hold space for like the grief that we feel about the world as it is and as it exists. And that gives me energy to then continue to um, fight and push for that better world. Marie De Luca, you are an inspiration. The work that you do offers hope that many of the indignities that are heaped on vulnerable people will one day be removed because you and others like you fearlessly say, not in our name. <laughs> Thank you. I um, love what you're doing with this podcast. I love the idea of being able to have these discussions and not have them restricted to like small localities. And I think it's just a, a wonderful way to like start these discussions and have this kind of communication. That's really exciting. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>